Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope that it will encourage you and help you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more. Genesis chapter 1 through 11, the first half of the Bible. Maybe you've never heard it framed that way, but allow your mind to go with our church family in that direction for this season. These next seven weeks, including today, leading up to Easter, we are exploring what some scholars say is literally the first half of Scripture. I know most of us look at Scripture divided by Old Testament and New Testament. We're not saying those divisions don't exist and they're, we've given them the kibosh, whatever the kibosh is. Uh, that's still there. But for you to understand what the whole of Scripture is saying, if you can get a firm grasp on what's happening in the first 11 chapters of Scripture, suddenly everything from Genesis 12 all the way to Revelation 22 starts to make a lot more sense. So why do a series like this? Two reasons. Number one, I happen to feel that I'm among people who love the Bible and are also confused by it and would like to grow in our general understanding of what in the world is God saying to us through this book. And secondly, in particular, um, all of us have a story. And uh, if we had the time, or when you're sitting down with somebody at our AGM, just can't wait to vote. And in the meantime, you have to talk about something. You know what you talk about is tell me your story. And in our world, when we say tell me your story, it means a very deeply personal um, event with a cast of one, (laughs) you. And that's just how the Western world and society has changed things in the last few generations. Prior to this, nobody had their own story. They were all part of a much bigger story. And that's the way scripture is written. And the reality is, do you know our story? And when I say our story, I don't mean the the recent history of Comox Pentecostal Church or the long history of Comox Pentecostal Church. I don't even mean the history of Christianity. I mean the history of our faith, the history of God's work in our world. That's our story. Do you know our story? And so these first 11 chapters lay a foundation of our story. Additionally, all of us have deep questions, don't we? Even if you follow Jesus for every day of your life, when you're honest, there are some deep questions that still exist in your soul. Am I right? Absolutely. And so returning to these first 11 chapters helps speak to and address some of these deep questions. Today, If you've ever asked or wondered, what are we? What am I? Why am I here? What does it mean to be human? Then today is hopefully a helpful day to you as we open again to the first chapters of the whole of Scripture. Daryl Johnson, who has written an excellent book on these first 11 chapters that's influencing us as we're going through this series, he said this, there is no other story in all of literature, ancient, modern, or postmodern, like the story of Genesis 1 and 2. For here, we are given an expansive picture of what it means to be fully human and fully alive. Now, I I bet you can guess where we're going in Scripture today, so grab your Bibles and go to Genesis 1 and 2. We're going to hover around in those two places, mostly chapter 2, but as you're going there, I just want to remind you of a few things that we have to attend to contextually. We can't just simply open the Scripture and place everything that we believe about reality upon that and expect it to echo that back to us. It's helpful to us to understand what this meant in its day, how it spoke to the first peoples who heard these stories, and read these stories, and then what does that mean to you and I today? And so if you want more information on that, like Laura said, you can go on the podcast and re-listen to last week if you missed it. We spent a bit more time laying out some of that stuff. But in a nutshell, we just have to remember that Genesis was penned with a lot of influence of a fellow named Moses, um, but there were other writers involved in those first actual five books of the Bible that make up the Pentateuch. And so there's the fingerprints of Moses everywhere. There's other people that are involved. And it's written into a time where God's people are coming into existence together. Their story is forming. And around them, there's all kinds of other nations that exist. They're in uh, a hotbed of all kinds of polarizing and different 
points of view, religious systems, social ways of existence, all around them in the ancient Near East at their time. And then there was a couple really other important things in Israel's history that contribute to some of the ways the stories in Genesis come to us and why they do. And those two things would be the Exodus, which is a little bit funny to think about because the Exodus follows the book of Genesis. But again, if Moses and others are writing it later on in history, they've, they're on the other side of the Exodus. And so they're retelling the story, but with the Exodus in mind. And also, about 600 years before Christ, when maybe the first actual written versions were finally recorded, the people of God had been taken away from their homeland, and they were in um, Babylon in captivity. And so there's this sense of longing and, and longing for home and sense of being in darkness and being in chaos and have the other gods defeated our God. And so... Genesis 1 and 2 and all of the book of Genesis and the gift of the Pentateuch as well comes to these people in written form to encourage them. And you think about the story of creation that we looked at last week. It's a healthy, helpful reminder to people who are swayed in circumstances that feel dark and chaotic that God shows up in the midst of darkness and chaos. His spirit actually can hover over that and bring light with a word and bring order out of chaos. That's what it meant to people thousands of years ago, but how refreshing is it that an ancient text thousands of years old actually speaks to you and I today, because you know what it's like to have dark moments of life. You know what it's like to experience chaos in your soul. And wouldn't it be wonderful? Wouldn't it arrive to your soul as good news if the Spirit of God could hover over those circumstances and speak light into darkness and order into chaos? Genesis 1 through 11 is a gift to you and I. Second thing, we just need to remember context-wise, as we looked at last week, and again, if you want the longer version of it, just re-watch or re-listen to last week, but Genesis 1 is not written in a genre where it's being presented as a philosophical paper, nor is it being written in a way where it's intended to be a scientific essay. Although there's philosophical implications and scientific implications, that was not the genre it was written in. It's written poetically. Genesis 1 is a song. I want to I help, help you understand this just a little, little bit further. For some people, you've maybe grown up in a world, in a church world, where it was only referred to in scientific terms. And so you might be a little uncomfortable with this idea that, what do you mean it's a song? In uh, the early 1600s, there was a scientist. You'll recognize his name in a moment. And he came out with some information that shocked the world. Let me um, step back from that for a second to just ask you a question. Does the sun revolve around the earth, or does the earth revolve around the sun? Earth revolves around the sun. All in favor, say aye. So it, it carries. We've just passed that motion. Okay, so the earth revolves around the sun. How did you arrive at that conclusion? Science, right? Um, in the 1600s, somebody said Google, yeah. That's science, right? Wikipedia, also science. It's easy. Anything internet, science. Um, in the 1600s, a fellow named Galileo started looking around with a telescope and brought earth-shattering news to the world saying, hang on. The sun doesn't revolve around the earth, the earth revolves around the sun, and he had the science to prove it. And what was the response of the church? They put him in house arrest. <laughs> they did. They actually were looking to do far worse things to him. Oh, church history, hey? Why? Because of two scriptures in particular. Let me read them to you. Psalm 19, 4 through 6 says this, In the heavens God pitched a tent for the sun, is like a bridegroom coming out of its chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run its course. It rises on one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. The church really hung on to that. And they're like, the sun is rising there and it's going over there. So it revolves around us. Uh, Psalm 93.1, the other scripture that was very important to them. The Lord reigns. He's clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. That's maybe good news for some people who were worried if he wasn't. Um, he has girded himself with strength. Surely the world, listen to the, this was the line, surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. 
Galileo, you're trying to tell us that the earth moves around the sun? What do you have to say, Galileo, to Psalm 93, one that says, surely the world is established that it cannot be moved? Now, you might find yourself in a predicament now because science says one thing, but the Bible says something else. Except, I think many of you would say, hang on, hang on, hang on. These are the Psalms. This is poetry, right? These are songs. It's just descriptive language. It's not meant to be science, right? Now, I want you to take that same way of thinking and put that on Genesis 1. It is a song. It is poetic. Does it have philosophical and scientific implications, hints, clues? Absolutely. And we can work with that. Okay, with these things in mind now, let's go to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to read a fairly decent swath. I say swath for any people with farming backgrounds. Maybe you feel a little more included. Um, Genesis chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 26. Then God said, let us make people in our image. It says man in my scripture here. Um, In the first parts of the text that we're going to be reading here, you're going to come across the word man some translations, it's translated into people. The, the Hebrew word there is Adam. And as we encounter it the first few times here, I actually don't want you to think about a male person named Adam. I want you to think about the actual word Adam in Hebrew, which means person, human. Um, one of the scholars I'm reading right now says, if science fiction hadn't already stole the word earthling, that would actually be the best term for us to consider in this context. The earthling. (laughs) So don't think of an alien and us as earthlings and all that, but that's the sense here. We're going to discover there is maleness and femaleness and a man and a woman and all of that, but as the story starts out, it's the Adam, not Adam the male whose name is Adam. It's the Adam, it's the earthling. So the Lord God said, let us make earthlings or earthling, in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over the earth, and all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27, so God created the Adam in his own image. In the image of God, God created him, male and female, he created them. So now we're getting, uh, things are moving along from the Adam now to a distinction between male and female. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food and to all the beasts of the air, the earth and the birds of the air and the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give you every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and saw that it was very good. There's been a rhythm going on in creation of him observing his work and saying and declaring over it's good, it's good. And as he looks at the creation of humanity at the end, he says, this is very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And then it goes into a description of the Sabbath. And just for those of you who like discovering new things. Maybe you didn't notice that throughout the days of creation, they always end with there's evening and there's morning and then it names the day. But the Sabbath has no end. That's a nice thought. God creates and then he welcomes us into his rest and enjoyment of his creation together. Let's skip down to chapter two, verse four. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, did you catch that? Do you want me to read that again? See if you can catch that. Let's read that again. I'll see if you can catch that. I haven't for years. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, what happened there? The order changed. In Genesis 1, it was always the heavens and the earth. And what happens in Genesis 2? This is now the account of the earth and the heavens. What's happening here? Genesis 2 is a scene change. And this verse, verse 4, is the scene change moment. It's kind of like this. And some of you movie people and TV people, you have to go back to the 70s with me for this. But hopefully it will help you understand. Do you remember the first scene of the first uh, Star Wars episode uh, 4 that came out? The very first scene. I got a picture for you. I heard an amen there. Yeah. (laughs) Genesis 1 is the first scene of episode four. 
There's stars, there's planets, uh, there isn't spacecrafts and lasers, but when you were watching, if you did, the first scenes of that movie, and maybe if you were around back in whenever it was, 70-something or 77, thank you. We have a lot of experts in the law here. <laughs> you knew what it was like to sit in a theater and watch this, and all of a sudden you're like, oh my goodness, it's so big, it's, everything's so big, it's so big, and then this first ship comes through, and you're like, wow, spaceships. And then there's lasers coming, and then this, and you're seeing it on the screen, this, this one starts coming, and you're like, oh, that's bigger. And then it just keeps coming, and it's bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Genesis 1 is all about the bigness of the heavens. It's, in fact, from the perspective of heaven. It's creation song from the perspective of heaven. Genesis 2, Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> Remember that show? So you're right down in the earth. The setting has now changed. It's the same creation story. It's just a different version of it. Genesis 1 is telling the story from heaven's perspective. Genesis 2 is telling the same story from earth's perspective. Now it's the beginning of Little House on the Prairie. So there's fields. And in the distance, there's a couple going by. And they've got horses. And you find out they've got a little home. And then they've got kids tumbling down a hill. Some of you remember that. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 have... Uh, a retelling of the same story that's occurring. It's a replay. You know how, um, it, well, in the Old Testament, we actually have this happen. There's the Kings, the book of Kings, and the books of Chronicles. They tell the same stories from two different ways. And that happens in the New Testament too. Where? The Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All telling the same stories, but from different angles. And so Genesis 1 is the creation story. And Genesis 2 is also the creation story, but from different angles. And again, if people are treating Genesis 1 and 2 as purely scientific, as if it was a scientific essay offered to humanity, we have a hard time with Genesis 1 and 2 because the order gets mixed up on things. Once you get into Genesis 2, you're like, wait, now we have people before we have shrubs and plants. Uh, I think the order is wrong here. It's a song, and it's telling it from different angles. Don't have to get wound up on the detail because it's not a scientific essay. It's retelling the story, but from a different angle. In Genesis 1... God is referred to in the Hebrew word uh, Elohim. And it's this um, universal term. It's Israel's universal term for God. In Genesis 2, the Hebrew name for God changes. It's not the same one. Now it's Yahweh. What does Yahweh mean? It still means God, but it's the Lord Almighty. It's the personal name of the God who's made himself known to them in, their in Israel's story. So chapter 1 has the universal name for God. Chapter 2 has the very personal name for God. In Genesis 1, God is hovering over the heavens and he's speaking things into existence with his word. In Genesis 2, God's right down on the earth and he's forming things with his hands. He's using raw materials. He's using his mouth and he's breathing life into things. Interesting. Scene changes going on here. Let's carry on with the text. Chapter 2, where did I leave you? Verse 4, boy, we've got a long way to go, you guys. Let's keep going. And no shrub of the field had yet appeared, verse 5, on the earth. And no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain yet to the earth. And there was no Adam to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed life into his nostrils. The breath of life. And the man became a living being. Verse 8, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man that he had formed. Bump down to verse 15, it's going to repeat here, but it's worth noting. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Go down to verse 18 with me. Now the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Isn't it interesting in this creation account? Genesis 1 has all the goods, and here we have a not good. It's not good for the Adam to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. We're going to return later on to those two words there, suitable helper. Now the Lord God formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man, the Adam, called each living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no, here's those words again, suitable helper was found. 
So the Lord God caused the man to fall into deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took of one of the Adam's ribs and closed that place up with flesh. And the Lord God made woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, for she will be called woman. She was taken out of the man. If you're reading along in your scripture there, have you noticed how the, the way those words are laid out has changed? It's no longer in paragraph form. Why? Because in the original Hebrew language, there's rhythm and poetry that's occurring here. This is the first ever human speech on record in scripture. And what is it? It's a poem from a man about a woman. Well done, guys. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The story that is our story, the story that helps make sense of all of our stories, offers us, I think, in the text that we've just read, five things that we discover about God and how he designed us. Um, we're going to breeze through the first one and number four and number five. We'll spend more time in the second and the third ones. First thing we discover about God's design is this. God designed us to be physical beings. And it's important to note here because um, Christians throughout history, for whatever reason, um, started parting ways with certain things that were very true in their scriptures and borrowed ideas from whom? A Greek philosopher named Plato. And Plato seemed to suggest to humanity that the physical realm is secondary. In fact, it's so spoiled that what matters most in existence is the unseen and the eternal. And the eternal is valuable, we know that from scripture, but Plato's work of devaluing the physical impacted Christianity for centuries of our history. And we need to return to the fact that in the beginning, God created a physical universe and physical people. And that's good. He declared it good. I need to remind you that when he created human bodies, it was good. It wasn't so that it could trap your spirit and eventually one day you'll die and you can just sort of float away into eternity forever as this disembodied being. That's not God's plan. I need to remind you that you don't have a body. <laughs> Some of you are like, okay. I want to clap for Laura's announcements again. Let's get rid of this guy. <laughs> you don't have a body. You are a body. You are a body. You are a soul. You are a spirit. You're all of that in one. I need to remind you that when scripture ends... God's not throwing away all things physical and letting everything be disembodied for eternity. Plato thought of that, and Christians, for whatever reasons, throughout centuries recently have embraced a lot of that. But that's not biblical. It's Platonic. In the end of all things, in Revelation, it doesn't end with an end. It actually ends with a new beginning, a new heavens, and a new earth. A physical coming together of the heavens and the earth. Daryl Johnson says this, what Genesis 1 and 2 tells us is that we are not human apart from our bodies. Number one, God designed us to be physical beings. Number two, God designed us to have purpose. God designed you to have purpose. I want to just outline three things that we see in this text that are part of God's purpose for you as a human in this room, a human online, a human in God's world right now. Here's three things that are part of his purpose in this text for you. Number one, to be his unique image bearer. What a privilege. When God created it all, if you recall some of the things we talked about last week, his creation work was him building a temple that he could live in. And in the creation of his temple, and this is how it went in the ancient Near Eastern religions around Israel at, in, the, in, in those days, they would build a temple, and one of the last things they'd do is they'd put an image of their God into the temple, and they'd celebrate that now that God had a reflection and a representative in that room. And they would even go through ceremonies of animating that idol, including breathing into it as if it could now be embodied by the God itself. And so God's like, I'll borrow some of those elements of the story so that you understand what's really going on here. The whole of all existence, the whole cosmos is my temple. And I'm going to put an image in the temple. 
and it's people. And I'm going to breathe my life, and they're going, to, they're going to have my image imprinted upon them. If you wonder, what does it mean to be an image bearer? Again, thank you for that podcast announcement. Last September, we did a series called 127 about how we value people. And we talked about being an image bearer there. You can go back and re-listen to some of that. But here's something I need to remind you of from last week and point something out this week for you. Last week, I said that in the Hebrew Old Testament, there's two words for creating something. Asa, everybody say asa. And that means to make things out of something else. If you build Lego, you're asahing. <laughs> you're taking something and you're making something else out of it. And in the Old Testament, um, people can asah things. And God asahs things in the Old Testament as well. But then there's a second word for creating in the Old Testament, and it's barak. And everybody say barak. And that's when you create something out of nothing. And in the Old Testament, only God can barak. And so he creates things out of nothing. And in the Genesis 1 story, there are three times he baraz. In verse 1, when he creates it all. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's the all-encompassing. He did it all. He made it all. He barad it. Out of nothing, he made everything. The second time he baraz in Genesis 1 is when he creates animals. Interesting, hey? And the third time he baraz is what? When he creates people. I find that very important. Last week I pointed out in a church like ours, and you need to be okay with this, we are going to have people who with enthusiasm embrace a literal six-day creation period. Fantastic. And in a church like ours, we're going to have other people who would say, you know, I see that you know, there could be a pathway. Maybe it's called evolutionary creationism. And that's a real thing. There are people who scientifically study that with faith in Christ. So, neither of them are salvation issues. When you get to the pearly gates one day, that's not a question for you. It's all about Jesus, not this or that. At the end of the day, what matters most in the creation story is, is there a creator, a designer, a benevolent, good God named Jesus who's responsible for all of this that you and I are accountable to, that you and I can know personally and have a relationship with? That's the foundational issue. Now, what I need to point out is, who does God barah, or what does he barah? Well, he barahs everything, and then he barahs animals, and then humans. That's vastly important. For those who might be on this side of things, exploring this idea of evolutionary creationism, one thing that is an absolute that cannot bend on is that humans did not evolve from animals, because God barahed animals, and then he barahed humans. Where does image bearing happen if there's been an evolutionary transition from animal kingdom into human kingdom? So if you're on this side of things and you're like, yeah, I see science backs up this idea of progression and change over time, fair. But animals were never image bearers and we have always had that assignment. It's, it's so important. You see, when we go down the road of beginning to believe that we've just come along accidentally from animals, it really devalues the image of God and the creator God himself, doesn't it? And so that's why Genesis, in its beauty and wonder, offers us clarity in this way. Second thing that this text reveals about our purpose is that uh, humans have a purpose to receive and multiply God's blessing and to fill the earth. You remember in Genesis 1, God blessed people and then told them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. I know this will come as uh, controversial to some of you, and it's not meant to be political whatsoever, but um, one of our children talked recently about overpopulation in the world, and it is a, there are challenges surrounding that, aren't there? But if the narrative is that people, there's too many of them, we need to have less of them, uh, that's an anti-biblical thought. We're image bearers, and our command has been to fill the earth. Now, we have to do it responsibly and care for the earth and one another in it. So if it's spinning out of control... That's on us to change it. But the problem isn't people filling the earth. That's our assignment. Third, to have dominion over creation. Oh, I need to back up. I forgot to read a great quote for you. Um, a scholar named Ian Provan said this, human beings 
uh, are not made on the sixth day because they come late in God's thinking. And I say that, and it's worth you knowing that, because in the ancient Near East around Israel, in their creation stories, humans were also always created last, but it's because the gods were frustrated with their existence. They needed more party supplies, and they needed slaves to accomplish it. And it was kind of like, you know, the car... Cars that come out of the factory on Friday afternoon, they're not as well done as the ones done midweek when people are thinking clearly. That was the narrative around Israel. It was like, uh, the gods kind of just needed something done. They didn't do their best work when they created people, but they, we just, they just needed them. That was the idea. And so God, in his story here, it's very, very different. It's not that humans came late in God's thinking when he was tired, but because they represent the high point of creation, that's why it's on the sixth day. One of the ways which Genesis indicates this is precisely to move them out of the role of being caretakers of a divine image in a temple, which is the other views of other religions, into the role of being divine images in a temple themselves. Wow. People matter. The people you love matter. The people you like matter. The people you dislike matter. Why? They're image bearers. Okay, back to this idea of having dominion over creation. It's a good day to be named Ian. Here's a few more Ian quotes, two different ones. Ian Hart says this. The text is saying that exercising royal dominion over the earth as God's representatives is the basic purpose for which God created people. Ian Provan again says this. Genesis 1 describes the world as a place designed by God in which life can flourish. Genesis 2 describes it as a place whose human population is essential to its flourishing. You and I are on this earth with an assignment from God. Now, God has an order in mind for how this is all to work, and I want you to be able to see it here. Here's the intended order. God rules in loving relationship over people, who then in turn rule in loving relationship over creation. And there's a lot of stuff, even in the Psalms that talk about this. I think it's Psalm 115 and then Psalm 8 as well. Talk about God having delegated authority and responsibility to humanity to, to manage his operations on earth. This is his intended order. God rules in loving relationship over people, people in loving relationship over creation. Now, there are distortions of that that begin occurring when we get the order wrong or we get the story wrong, right? There's an ancient one and there's a modern one. You can probably name many more. But in the ancient one, it's all about the party gods who need manpower so they create people and they make the people do the work on the earth so they can have better parties separate of humanity and earth because they live in the better realm. That's a distortion of the story and the order, but that's the world Israel grew up among. That's the story they grew up among. And so God's clarifying it for them. No, it's not about the party gods and all the chaos that's created in anxiously trying to worship the gods properly so they can water the ground for you so that you at least get enough grain to eat for yourself so that you can make sure they have a good party too. That's not the narrative. So God's rescuing them from that by saying it's about him being in loving relationship over people and them having loving relationship and rule over creation. The other Distortion would be a modern one, which is not about party gods that live in another realm. Who's the god of our age today? The autonomous self. The new party god is me. And the problem is, this world is filled with me's. But the, they're you, not me. And so we're all competing for our godlike status with each other in our world. And what does it create? Just like in this scenario, fear and chaos. What does it create in our world here today? Fear and chaos. We take advantage of the world around us to meet our needs so we can be the crazy gods of the time. And we've eliminated a God who is ruling over us in loving relationship. But when there is a God who rules in loving relationship over people, who rule in loving relationship over creation, what is the result? Not fear. Not chaos. Order. Harmony. Peace. Uh, it would be where the Hebrew word shalom comes from, the order of God. So the question for our age is ultimately this, who has authority over the self? <laughs> self or designer? You see, Genesis 1 and Genesis 1 through 11 come to us as a help because we live in a world right now that's saying you have authority over you, ultimate authority over you. You get to design, you get to define, doesn't matter how you were made, you get to do whatever you want. You get to say whatever you want. But what are we creating? A world with a whole bunch of self-centered party gods that are creating chaos and darkness everywhere. It's out of order. It's out of sync. 
So the question for our age, who has ultimate authority over self? Is it self or designer? I know that um, for <clears throat> many years we've watched movies with artificial intelligence. And I think there's still some movies like that coming out, but all of us are watching as real AI is happening around us, right? And you're probably catching every once in a while some of the headlines about, okay, it appears that in this situation with this AI thing, it began thinking about doing things like this, and we didn't know how to predict that, and now it's wanting to do it independently. There are dangers. What are the greatest fears associated with AI, either in the old movies or in present-day reality? What if AI becomes autonomous and has no relational regard for its designer or for others? That's why you can write great movies, right? And that's why we all feel a little bit nervous every time we see a headline with AI in it, like, oh no. What if it gets a nuclear code, <laughs> right? Um, when we think of AI, what happens if it could self-determine a path for itself apart from its design? Seems unnerving, doesn't it? Here's the reality. When, and when AI becomes autonomous, it's always destructive to others and eventually to self, isn't it? And it's worth us thinking about in our own context. There is a created order. It should come to good news to you and I that you and I do not have to be the gods of this world. We're only going to create more chaos for self and others. We're like the AI that's defunct and not doing it right. We need to come under the authority of our designer. Uh, so second big idea for us that we learned from the text is God designed us to have purpose. If you want to read something to follow up on this more, let me just recommend a book to you. It's called Garden City by a fellow named John Mark Comer. And it's on work, rest, and the art of being human. I've been through it a few times. Excellent book. It goes into a lot of the Genesis story. If you're the kind of person that you're, you're carrying on in whatever career path you are in, and you've thought, this is not spiritual. I don't know if it's helping. I don't know if, if this is doing any good for God in his world. Read this book. You may just find that what you are doing as a career right now is actual kingdom work. It will help you. Okay, third thing we learned from the text is this. God designed us to be in thriving relationships with ourselves. Again, we're going to spend a bit more time on this one than we're going to breeze through the last two. God designed us to be in thriving relationships with ourselves. Do you know how the text ended that we were reading today? They were naked and unashamed. Naked and unashamed. I don't want to ask you what you pictured when you heard that. But let me tell you that in ancient Middle Eastern times, that kind of language, naked and unashamed, meant this. I can be myself without masks. So when God created people in his image in the garden, remember where we're at in the text, this is before the fall of man. He created people to be able to live without masks. Why do, why do people wear masks? It's, it's worth you thinking through your own life story. Have there been times and seasons where you felt like you're wearing multiple masks? I remember a season in my life where it was like I had home mic, and I had church mic, and then I had school mic. And they were all kind of different from each other. And the big fear, like from Seinfeld, was that one day the worlds would collide. And how is Mike going to make it through all of that when all the masks have to be together? Because that's impossible. And we wear masks for all kinds of different reasons. There can be pretentious masks. We want people to believe certain things about us. Masks that project a preferred way we'd like to be seen or known. Masks that protect us. Maybe there's things we're afraid of people discovering or finding out about ourselves. We have scars. We have things we're ashamed of that we don't want seen by others. Masks that can make people, we feel, uh, make people think that we actually feel confident when truly on the inside we're quite confused. God, and this is the good news from Genesis 1 and 2, God did not design you to have to wear any mask ever. Mask management is exhausting. And if you get caught in the wrong place with the wrong mask, it's terrifying. And so God said, that's not how I made it. I, I created people to be naked and unashamed. It was not about strange colonies, okay? <laughs> it was about you being designed in a way that you could live a life free from having to wear a mask for anyone. You just get to be you. Who makes the mask? Well, the world does. Sometimes we go and we pay big money to get those masks. Uh, we make a lot of our own masks, don't we? And why? 
do we do it? Well, we've talked about that already. Who decides to put it on? The world doesn't force it on you. At the end of the day, you're the one. I'm the one who actually picks up a mask and puts it on, aren't I? Friends, this is why we make a big deal about emotionally healthy spirituality in our church. Because masks are hard to grapple with. And all of us have them. And all of us need help identifying and removing and becoming confident in who God's called us to be. We value health in this church. And that means learning to live without the masks and be confident in who Christ made you to be. Living unmasked, unmasked means accepting God's designed identity for you and not determining it for yourself. Because as, as soon as you're determining it for yourself, what are you doing? You're creating your own mask and you're creating yourself in your own image, aren't you? And that's a defiance against the work of the creator. So again... We don't have permission to make our own masks, as tempting as it can be. Living unmasked, unmasked means accepting God's designed identity for you. God's designed identity for you includes the best of your personality and uniqueness. It includes the passions and gifts that he's given you. It includes the very essence of who you are apart from what you can do and cannot do. It includes all of you, spirit, soul, and body. It includes your gender, your sexuality, by his definition, and by his design. Matthew chapter 19, we looked at this actually in a series last year. I want to draw your attention back to it. Jesus is speaking. He's being asked about some relational issues, and here's how he answers. In the beginning, the creator made male and female. That's a reference to Genesis 1. And said, for this reason, and this is now a reference to Genesis 2. Isn't it interesting? When Jesus is asked about relational things, where does he go? Jesus he had the right to say, you've heard it said, but I say to you. He didn't do that in this occasion. He goes right back to the work of his design at creation. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus points to Genesis 1 and 2 to uphold Issues of identity and gender and sexuality and marriage and family. In verse 6, he concludes by saying, What God has joined together, let no one separate. Or in other words, what God has said, let no one edit. What God has arranged, let no one rearrange. Friends, no amount of desire, self-determination, or cultural reorientation has a higher authority to redefine what God has already designed. Many other places in the Bible help us to see this clearly. For those who wish to study this further, let me just put a chart up on the screen for you based out of Romans chapters 1 and 4 because this also links identity and sexuality to creation. And sometimes we might not see it if we're reading through Romans, but I want you to go to this chart with me right now. In Romans chapter 1, I'm going to breeze through it really quickly. It talks about how humanity and society unravels itself and so we find in verse 20, humanity ignores God, and then there's this spiraling downward and downward and downward. It begins by ignoring God as creator. Then it ceases to give thanks to God. Then it refuses to give glory to God. Then they turn to tangible other gods. And in the final state, they choose infertile relationships. Remember what our human assignment is? To multiply and fill the earth. And so as an act of rebellion against God, there's a choice of infertile relationships. And Paul, when he's writing Romans under the inspiration of the Spirit, contrasts purposefully what's happening in Romans 1 with the example of Abraham in Romans 4. And now we'll put on the other part of the chart here. Watch Abraham's life and how it mirrors in reversal what happens when humanity abandons God. Abraham believes creator God. And then he trusts God. Then he gives glory to God. And he's faithful to an invisible God. And what happens? Abraham, who was previously unable to have children, becomes a fruitful relationship. You can give that further study and thought in your own time. I want to draw attention to the word in the text we looked at earlier, suitable. Remember there's that phrase, suitable helper? There was no suitable helper found for Adam. The word suitable in the original Hebrew language is very complex because it carries within it two seemingly opposing ideas. The word suitable in the original Hebrew language means corresponding to. That seems to make sense. And simultaneously, it means opposite of. So you can actually kind of put them together. A corresponding opposite. 
Remember, it's not good for Adam to be alone. And so God says, we've got to find a suitable, a suitable, a corresponding opposite for him. And so what happens next? Animals are brought to him. But are they a corresponding opposite or not? And, and the observation is made after the animals come to Adam and he names them all. No suitable helper was found among them. No corresponding opposite was found among, among them. So here's this idea, corresponding opposite. It means that God has designed things for humanity that we're with others who are like us and different at the same time. And here's how it plays out with Adam. If Adam had a helper come to him who is only like him, it would be a mirroring experience and then he would still be alone. Or if Adam had some a helper come to him that was only different from him, he wouldn't correspond with it. And so he would still be alone. Daryl Johnson says this, so God creates woman. She is the helper suitable for Adam because she is both like him and yet different from him. In the female human, the male meets someone who is both like him and yet different from him. In the male human, the female human meets someone who is both like her and yet different from her. Which brings us to our fourth point. God designed us to be in thriving relationships with others, not alone. No masks together in marriage, in family, in community. God has designed you to be in thriving relationships with others. Daryl Johnson says this, we were made for relationships, which is why broken relationships hurt more than broken bones. Fifth and lastly, God designed us to be in thriving relationships with him. No masks with God. It's funny, because God can see through the masks, can't he? But we still try. What happened after, and we'll get to this part of the story later on in this series, but Adam and Eve make their own declaration of independence, and then God comes walking into the garden. What do Adam and Eve do? Make clothes. What are they? It's masks. You were designed to be in a thriving relationship with God. No masks with him. No barrier between you and him. Johnson says this. We finally know what it means to be human when we know the one who has made us in his image. Friends, it doesn't take a scientist <laughs> or a philosopher to realize that as humans, we sure have been failing in the realms of our purpose and thriving relationships with self, with others, and with God. Is that right? We're struggling as people. Can we possibly rescue ourselves from this mess? I want to just point one thing out to you as we conclude today. <clears throat> I, I spoke earlier how Jesus points to Genesis 1 and 2. But I love how Genesis 1 and 2 point to Jesus. Remember the two words, suitable helper? We talked about suitable. The word helper is this Hebrew word, azer. Can you say azer? And, you know, different translations and variations throughout the years have sort of put something out there like help meet or helper. And um, there's been a failure in Christian history for many years at properly understanding what azer means. And I hate to say it, but it's true. A lot of men with a lot of power have taken advantage of that word because it allows them to feel superior, more powerful than women and take advantage of them because of that. And if you've ever been hurt by that, I apologize on behalf of the church, on behalf of pastors, on behalf of men. It's not right. It's not biblical. Azer, you see, does not mean sort of this secondary, almost helpless helper. It does not mean lowly assistant. The word azer is used here as God is creating Eve. And it's used in the rest of the Old Testament almost exclusively to describe God. This word azer has to do with this idea of a powerful figure that comes to save someone in trouble. And when you think about how rotten humanity has treated women throughout history, especially in ancient history, Think about the world as it was in ancient Israel and the first peoples of God. All around them, women were being gravely mistreated, 
barely second-class human citizens. And into the midst of that story, God says, let me tell you how it actually all began. The Adam needed an azer. So we sent a woman, a powerful figure who had the strength to rescue this man in trouble, a woman. Think about in the ancient world how God wanted to make sure women were dignified when all around the world they were being taken advantage of. In my place, with my people, they matter. They're equals. Isn't that beautiful? Now, you're still wondering, how did this point to Jesus? Let me get to that. Friends, Jesus is the only suitable helper that can rescue you and I in the mess that we find ourselves in this world. How is he suitable? It's brilliant. He's both like us and different than us. He is human, which is like us. He can identify with us, and he's totally different from us in the same moment. He is suitable to you and I. He's the only one in all existence that could save and have the authority to rescue us from all our messes. Why? He's suitable to us. He's both like us and he's different. He's the corresponding opposite you and I needed. And why else? He's the suitable helper. He is the azer. Isn't it beautiful that when God wanted to project how he's going to rescue humanity one day, he puts a woman in the garden and says, look how this azer came. One day there will be the final azer who will come. His name is Jesus. He's the powerful figure who has all authority to rescue, to heal, to save, and to restore. It's Jesus. Let's stand together. In the same way that a woman, through tremendous pain, brings life into the world, Jesus, through the fourth tree, the cross, gives new life to you and I. Uh, I want you to just see on the screen, some of you like to know that this is available to you if you want to take a picture of it or if you want to just, it'll be on the website later on this week. Um, if you're tracking along with your life group or with a small group of people or with coffee club or DNA relationships, here's five discussion questions based out of our talk this morning. Some of you may even just want to follow this along for personal study. Let me just point out, um, last week, Psalm 104 was a great sort of mirror to Genesis 1. Today you should read Psalm chapter 8. There's so much good in there that reflects what we've talked about today. So you can follow along and have discussion with others as we grow through this series together. Today, as we've met in times of prayer and worship and the word, maybe something has spoken to you. Maybe, maybe you are not thriving in relationship with yourself. Maybe there are masks. You need a suitable helper to heal you. Maybe you are struggling in relationship with somebody else or in your walk with God, or there's just a different need. These people are here today, available to pray with you. Don't leave before somebody can encourage you in prayer. Let me pray as we conclude together right now. Father, I thank you for each person gathered here. And we just honor you, Jesus, the most suitable helper. You're the one, the only, that we need. Right now, we welcome your presence and your work to each of our lives. Now, Father, as we go into your world, it's your temple. We have such a privilege to serve as image bearers. Um, we're on your mission. We want to fulfill our purpose. We need you. We need each other. We need the empowerment of your spirit. We want to see your love, your truth, your message and ministry in the everyday stuff of life this week. Bless us and bless this community. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. amen. Have a wonderful, wonderful, enjoy the sun and blue sky today. God bless you. Please, if you do need somebody to pray with you, we would love to pray with you today. Thanks again for listening to today's message. We hope that it encouraged you as you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more.